What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here for episode number 164 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am here with Shawan Humes, and I wanted to say hello and thank you for joining the show today, Shawan. Hey, guys. How's everybody, how's everybody doing? How was your week, man? Oh, man. Texas is opening up, so it's getting kind of interesting. Rose starting to fill back up, and uh, you just see people getting out more and restaurants and everything opening more. So I guess we'll be back to full capacity in another week or so. When are you going to be out in those streets, though, man? Uh, man, I, just, I don't say I say to myself mostly. I mostly got stuff for doing kids and everything. But I uh, have to get out there sooner than later. You know, uh, my job thing is still out. So I'll probably just start looking for another job or something. A couple of kids coming back to start training. So maybe I'll start training people. Just take it slow and see how it goes. True. I hear you on that. And um, we got a couple of different things to talk about today. We're going to be covering UFC on ESPN 8 from this past weekend. Maybe talk a little bit about the UFC event that was on Wednesday of last week. And also talk some MMA news before getting into the um, listener questions. But before I do that, as always, I want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Um, you can find me at rgarcia underscore sports, and you can catch Juan over there at Black Jordan Bean. MMA Ratings, you can go over to mmaratings.net. That's our flagship where you can rate the fights and let us know what you think about all the action from the week. And tell us how anticipated you or excited you are for the upcoming fights. You can also catch us on MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter, and this podcast, along with the wrestling podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. So thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. Please be sure to like and subscribe, and Shawan and I are going to jump right into it, where the first topic I wanted to talk about was UFC on ESPN 8, where we saw a main event situation go down where um, Walt Harris took a nail to Alistair Overeem in what people are calling a pretty much emotional fight for him. Obviously, this is his first fight back after his stepdaughter was um, murdered. So it was a very emotional situation for him, and he started out very, very fast and in a very positive way when he had Overeem hurt. He had him really hurt, really bad off to rights there. But then he threw a front kick, which started the decline and allowed um, Alistair to get his bearings back, uh, survive round one, and come out to finish him in round two. So, Shawan, let's talk about Alistair Overeem first. And what did you see from him on Saturday? What did you think of his um, the way he went in there and secured this fight? Uh, I just saw what I've I've always seen from Alistair. The fact of the matter is he's just one of the most skilled heavyweight fighters in the history of the sport. Like, he, he has real striking chops. He has real grappling chops. Maybe his wrestling isn't the greatest, but at heavyweight, he, he, may, as, he may as well be a collegiate wrestler at heavyweight, how many guys don't have legitimate extended wrestling backgrounds. I mean, he's an all-round fighter who's always been trade by his cardio and his chin and um before the fight a lot of people were talking about the story about Walt Harris and I know I didn't really want to say a lot on Twitter or say a lot about it before it but the question in my mind kept 
being like, what are they going to do when he loses this fight? Because it's a good storyline. It's good information. He's a good guy. It's a terrible situation. But the fact of the matter, when it comes down to it, there was going to have to be a fight that takes place. And while Overeem's super vulnerable, the fact of the matter is he is a veteran. He's basically one of the best all-round fighters in the heavyweight division's history. And he's got just years and years and years of combat sports experience. I didn't really see too many spots that Harris could actually beat him in unless Harris just walked right through him, landed a big shot, and just overwhelmed him. Outside of that, I couldn't name a way that Harris would beat him. Harris wasn't going to beat him by decision. He wasn't going to outstrike him. He wasn't going to outgrapple him. Maybe outwrestle him, maybe, but I didn't. He could keep that up for five rounds. So um, it pretty much went the way I expected. There was going to be some rocky moments, as there always is with Overeem, because of his chin and his uh his durability. But um, the name of the game is skills, and he's still one of the better athletes in weight in the weight division. Plus, he's light years better than almost everybody technically. So when he wants to do something, there's very few guys who can stop him. Will Harris, for, for all his um, professionalism and his class and his big heart as he has, he's he's still a fairly limited fighter. So you said that the only way you saw, or the main way you saw Harris being able to defeat over him is if he just went in there and blew him away. That's almost what happened. What did you see that led to that moment there and that Overeem was really hurt and looked like he was on his way out? And where did Harris make the mistake that allowed Overeem to capitalize on it? I think the biggest thing with Overeem is early on, he always comes, he tries to, I mean, if you notice in his past couple years of fights, he's tried to maintain distance. He used to kind of march you down and get into the clinch. But once guys started showing they could handle his power and they were willing to take chances, he started planting off the bat back foot, circling away, trying to maintain distance so he could kind of snipe, be a sniper, and pick guys apart with leg kicks, uh, lead rights, jabs, uh, counter knees, stuff like that, and kind of pick you apart. Then when he gets you hesitant or scared or stumbling, then, he's, then he kind of puts on the pressure, take you down, force you up against the cage, beat you up with a clinch, take you down and submit you, whatever. But early on, he likes to maintain his distance. Harris just didn't let him do it, but Harris just came out on fire. And w- that was smart, in my opinion. Harris Harris is still is a very good athlete. He hits pretty hard. He's fairly durable. He's strong. He's fast. But he can't match over him on the feet in anywhere except maybe aggression and, and athleticism and try to overwhelm him. And that's what he tried to do. He he jumped on him and tried to get the finish. And I think he might have spent a little bit too much energy trying to go for the finish. But given, to be honest, given his lack of skills, that was his best shot. He wasn't going to outbox over him for five rounds. He wasn't going to outgrapple him for five rounds. I don't really believe that even Walt Harris thought he could out-wrestle him for five rounds. His best shot was to land something early, put pressure on him, and just overwhelm him and hoped that Overeem couldn't recover. But he kind of overplayed his hand. He allowed Overeem to break his posture, and Overeem just started slowly working his way back in the fight. Once he broke his posture and started controlling his arms to where he couldn't just tee off, uh, that the fight was essentially lost. His only chance was to make the fight at a high pace, high contact, and not allow over him to get his bearings or, or to dictate dictate the pace and place of the fight. Once over him got his bearings and he started dictating how the fight was going to go and he started controlling the range, Harris had nothing for him. As soon as Harris couldn't overwhelm him and physically dominate him, he had nothing for him. Nothing at all. So, so the question I have for you is was this fight more won by Overeem or lost by Harris? Uh, it was won by Overeem. Overeem had to make adjustments. He was getting beat up. He had to hang in there. He had to get. He had to be able to break the posture. He had to be able to control the wrist. He had to be able to defend and move enough to keep the fight from being stopped. As I said, Will Harris did what he needed to do to win the fight. That was literally his only chance. 
that or a Hail Mary. There was nothing he could, I mean, they're not even in the same category as far as grappling skill or striking skill. It's nowhere close. Most people aren't. I mean, Overeem's last fight, he lost. He had that fight won. He just got caught late. He just got, he got tired. He got trapped. He got caught late. There's very few people who can match Overeem skill for skill. Walt Harris is not one of those people. So he took the best approach. He made the best moves. One thing is he couldn't finish. And it, even though Overeem's been a guy who's been knocked out, who has he been knocked out by? Ben Rothwell, usually a big finisher. Um, you know, Francis Ngannou, usually a big finisher. Uh, I can't say the last guy's Rosentrick. The world, he, you know, that guy. Big, yeah, there you go. Another another big finisher. He's been finished by guys who are known for having devastating power and are good finishers. Walt Harris isn't a devastating puncher, striker, and he's he's not a great finisher. So he got him in the spot he wanted, but he he didn't have the power to really put him away. So then Overeem started doing the veteran thing, tying him up, wearing him out, moving around just enough to keep the fight going. And he slowly worked his way back into it, got back to his feet. And once he got back to his feet, the, the skill gap became apparent once again. Harris couldn't enter. He couldn't get into range clean. He couldn't get out of range clean. He couldn't set combinations up. He couldn't put anything together. He was essentially... He was essentially just there for the pickings for Overeem. Overeem just dismantled him. I mean, it wasn't even a matter of just power and athleticism. Overeem was just two or three steps ahead of him on the feet. Harris had no idea how to get into positions he needed to get into and had no idea how to get out of the positions without taking punishment. And that, that was the story of the fight. So let's ask this, Dennis. Do, do we live in a world where we would ever see um, Alex Overeem as a UFC champion? There's still a chance. I mean, he came close. He he was close to beating Stipe. Um, I still believe he can beat Francis Ngannou if he fights the right fight. And there's there's not many heavyweights who've got his his level of experience or his level of skill. That's the thing. He's beaten almost everybody else at the weight class. I mean, whoever wins between Stipe and Daniel Cormier if, after they fight Ngannou, um, he, he's in he's in position. If Cormier beats Stipe, and then he. Re- retires, then it'd probably be Overeem and Ngannou for the title again. I mean, he's no worse than the third, second or third best heavyweight in the world, and he's he's probably the most skilled heavyweight regardless of whether he's the best or not. He's still probably the most skilled the most, most skilled fighter they have in the heavyweight weight class. So he's the most skilled, but at 40 years old, how, where's his path to that heavyweight title? That that's the last thing that he 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 needs. The last title he needs to close out his story career. He's already a Hall of Famer, but that's the last thing he needs to hang on, on his mantle. How does he get there? Basically, just wait. I mean, who who hasn't he beat the division? There's only like two or three people he hasn't beaten, and uh, I don't know that anybody who's won recently is in any position to call him out for a rematch. I mean, Rothwell hasn't went over him, but that was years ago. Um, the last guy who beat him just got knocked out by Ngannou. Ngannou probably wouldn't fight him again just because he beat him in so, such devastating fashion. So really, there's nothing for him to do except to wait, unless he's getting a fight with a, a Daniel Cormier or something of that nature. I don't see I don't see any reason for him to take, take a fight. I mean, he's pretty much in the he's no worse than the third third guy in, in on the list, second guy on the list. It'll be Cormier and then him afterwards. I mean, I guess if he fought Derek Lewis, he could try and fight Derek Lewis. He wins that, then he's in the driver's seat, but at worst case scenario, he's going to be behind Cormier and Ngannou 
after that, he's probably third in the division in, in line for a title fight. I mean, there's really no other path to go. He beats two guys, beats three guys. He's not going to be in any better position than he is right now. It's just a matter of how long he wants to be inactive before he, he takes another fight. Okay. Good thoughts there. I, I, I wonder if, you know, we can find a situation where he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. I think that that would be like a moment where he would win the title and maybe retire on the spot or just win the title and like defend it one time and then go away. I could think of one thing, one thing I didn't think about. Let's say Nganu says he doesn't want to fight for an interim title, right? And they don't, somehow they can't come to a conclusion with Steve Bay and DC. They could do a DC versus Overeem for an interim title. Whoever wins that gets a challenge for the next title. That's the only shortcut I could see him getting. Otherwise, he's going to be behind Nganu and, and Cormier. So let's play a game, okay? Because we're, we're talking about UFC and we're talking about the heavyweight division here. We have Alistair Overeem. So of these five names, who is the best? Okay, so we have Overeem who's sitting at eight. Champion is Stipe, one is Cormier, two is Francis, three is Curtis Blades, four is Junior Dos Santos, and five is Derek Lewis. He has a win over JDS. He's lost to Nganu and Blades. Um, I don't think he's fought Derek Lewis. He has not fought Cormier, and he's lost to Stipe Miocic. Of those five names, who is the best opportunity where if, if the door opened up for like an interim title or something like that in, in Bizarro World? Who does he face, and who would you pick, and and why? You got Sipe, Cormier, Nganu, Blades, Dos Santos, and Lewis. I would assume it'd be Cormier and and Overeem. I guess Blades might go for it, interim title, but Nganu says he doesn't want to deal with it at all, and I don't know if he means that or not. But it, if it was an interim title, I'd assume it'd be DC and Francis or DC and Alistair. It's just a bigger fight. I know Blades has a win over him, but Blades, he, he's not terribly popular, and he, he's not terribly devastating, and he's lost twice to Nganu. So there, you can't justify putting him in any position. You can't really justify him in a position from a selling point or from the, from the point of where he stands in his career. So I would think it'd be DC and Nganu or DC and Overeem if they were going to make an interim title fight. Okay. So let's talk about this coming event where we saw Claudia Gadelia win a split decision over Angela Hill. Um, I want to talk about a couple of different things in this fight here. But first, who did you have winning, um, Gadelia or Hill, and why? Um, I think it ended up being, I thought it would be, to be honest, I thought it really was a draw. I I, I saw the fight for Gadelia just because um, in the last round, even though Hill was throwing a lot more and seemed to be landing a lot more, it seemed like the bigger shots were being landed by Claudia. Like she might, Hill might land three or four shots, but every shot that Claudia landed was cleaner and just seemed to carry a little bit more behind it. Um, I don't have a problem with Hill having a problem with the loss because Hill, you know, hurt her badly in the, in the second round and she was outworking her. But the fact of the matter is when they were both landing shots equally, Goodell is carried a little bit more power and as much work that, Hill did in the second round. I can say that was nullified by the first round that Claudia had by controlling her up against Cage and taking her down and essentially just working over. It wasn't like a 10-8 round, but it was a clear 10-9. 
Uh, the second round was a clear 10-9 for Hill. In the third round, Hill threw more volume, but in throwing more volume, Claudia sat back a little bit and started countering instead of leading. And when she was countering, Hill was just walking in a big shot. She might land three or four, but when she got, got touched, she got touched and she got touched hard, noticeably hard. And I think that's what they noticed. I think they noticed the power difference in it. So it was. It, it, there's a lot of different angles looking at this that makes me wonder um, just kind of how to break it down because if you look at the striking statistics, Hill pulled away at the end of the first, or she pulled away in the second and, and, and third round um, easily. I mean, she landed 37 of 72 in the second and 43 of 78 in the third compared to 29 of 71 for Gedalia's second and 34 of 92 for Gedalia's third. Yeah, I do agree that she was landing the harder shots, um, but Hill was landing more, so it's, it's a little bit more difficult to judge it that way. Um, I thought she took. I, I thought she pulled away with the third. Uh, did she score the knockdown in the second, which was really surprising to me because I can't remember the last time Angela Hill knocked anybody down. Um, you know, look, thinking looking back over her fight stats, I mean, she hasn't knocked anyone down in a very long time. I don't think, and I'm just looking high level right now at some of her numbers. I know she hasn't knocked anyone down in this current streak that she's on. So to see her drop someone, the way she dropped uh, Claudia Gadelia was probably the biggest moment to me and really caught my uh, attention. But I think from that moment through the rest of the fight, she did more. Um, and I think that that was enough to win the fight in my eyes, especially as um, Gadelia started slowing down. You and I were actually talking about it on... Twitter going back and forth that Gadelia's style that you know that grind take you down and beat you up style is effective if you can keep it up for the amount of time I mean if we think about it Gadelia should have been a champion already if she would have been able to keep it up against Joanna in both fights that's what cost her both of those fights she ran out of gas and she did a little bit better today or excuse me on Saturday with it but she's still struggling with that and I think that that gave Hill, Hill's activity more weight, in my opinion. Well, the main, the main thing is like I've known this because I've, I've actually I used to work with one of her old camps when she fought Carolina Kovacavich. So pause, uh, pause one second, one second, one second, real, real quick. I just did some digging. The yeah. last time Angela Hill knocked anyone down, guess who it was and when? You'll never guess this. Mm, I'm trying. You'll to... never guess this. Jessica Andrade. Damn it, yeah. <laughs> That's the last person she knocked down. And that fight was back in uh, 2017, three years ago. Yeah, I never thought, mainly, this is the, the, the thing I thought, the thing, the problem I've always had with Cody Gadelli is this. She has the physical tools, and like you said, she always gets tired. But the thing is, if you have a, a, a hole that maybe you can't resolve, maybe you're just tired, maybe you don't hit very hard. You can't necessarily eliminate that ASAP, but you can fight in a manner that maximizes your strengths and kind of minimizes your weaknesses. I would have liked to see, in all her fights where she loses, she fights extremely dumb. Against Nina Ansarov, she got tired because she was doing what? Chasing takedowns. Against Jessica Andrade, she was boxing her up. 
And then she decides she's going to go for a takedown. She fights for a takedown. I think she got it, but was dead tied. And Andrade got back up. She got one takedown against Ansarov early. And then the next two rounds, she's chasing takedowns, getting chipped up. And it's like she she just, it's like she's not aware or her, or her camp isn't aware of where her holes are at because the best fight for Claudia isn't an exciting fight. Exciting fights mean there's lots of energy. There's lots of strikes thrown. There's lots of strikes taken. That's great for us. That's bad for her because her cardio always fails her. I always tell people she should be getting on the jab. She should be, she should be setting out the jab, using feints, and trying to get Hill to come to her so she can counter, land to the kick to the legs, punch to that long, lean body that Angela Hill has, then come up over the top with the big right hands, left hooks, jabs, all that stuff. But in the, the first round, she's got her up against the fence, and what's she doing? Trying to yank her off to get takedowns. And when she finally takes her down, she controls her, but she didn't do enough damage to make it worth all the trouble she went through to get the takedown, and she ran her own energy down. Her legs were gone. So then when her legs are gone, somebody hits you, you get dropped earlier. She's not a great defensive fighter in the first place. So now her legs are gone, which means she can't dip, she can't bend at the knees, she can't slip and slide off the shots. She just becomes a target. And she's against Hill, who, and Hill does many things wrong, but Hill's a very conditioned athlete, and Hill's always willing to go to war. So you're dead tired, and Hill's full of energy, seeing you're tired and starting to throw a lot of volume. Of course, that's going to result in a bad round. In the third round, Hill was still coming forward throwing volume, but instead of just trying to meet Hill halfway, Gedalia was saving up her energy and just loading up for counters. She was loading up on the shots. So when she was hitting Hill, she's hitting Hill with everything she has. But the reason it's actually landing is because she's letting Hill throw first and either beating her to the punch or accepting the fact that she's going to get hit taking the hit and then scoring a much bigger shot in return on Hill. And that's what I felt she should have been doing from stage one, wasting all the energy trying to match volume, trying to get these takedowns. That was never the move. Get your jab going. Look for counters. When Hill starts throwing those extended combinations, that's when you go for the takedowns. You save your energy. You don't wait till you're dead tired and, and now you're trying to force more takedowns. It was just bad fight IQ. And I think most of her issues aren't so much part of its cardio. Part of it's just she fights in a very, very, very dumb manner. She doesn't protect herself. She doesn't play to her, her strengths. And she routinely exposes her weakness to everybody she fights by trying to physically dominate them when she knows she can't keep up with the pace. And it's cost her. Like you said, it's cost her multiple times. You would think she would make an adjustment in what she does and how she does it. I'm sorry. I was on mute. My bad. I didn't realize. So how do you fix that? Because at some point in time, a, an athlete is who they are. Gadelia is 31 years old. She turns 32 this year. Is she at that point in her career where this is who she is and we just got to kind of go with it? Or um, well, in a fight against Marcos, built up? In, a, in a fight against Marcos, you saw more of it. She was more patient. She didn't look to get into ground exchanges. She didn't force things to the ground. She was just boxing in a very boring and clean manner. And that's what she needs to do. Be smart. Be efficient with your shots. Throw you instead of throwing 32 shots around, throw 20. But then when you throw them, throw them hard and throw them on the counter. Because when you throw them on the counter, you're almost guaranteed to land. If you throw them to the body, you're almost guaranteed to land. Every time you throw somebody throws 10 shots to the head, they might land four of them. You throw 10 shots to the body, nine, nine times out of 10, you're going to land all 10 to the body. So you you go to the target you can hit the most and you can hit the hardest. It's going to impede your opponent's ability to press to put pace on you or to use their physicality on you. She didn't really attack the body against Hill. And, and like I said, originally she was trying to stalk her. It's just shocking to me because as a veteran, you're supposed to learn and grow and diversify what you're doing. And it seems like in an 
a lot of ways, she's still the same fighter, or at least she knows better sometimes, but she just goes back to bad habits. I think she essentially is who she is, and she's got enough technical skill, and she's got enough physical talent, where she's going to beat a large majority of girls. There's still a lot of large majority of women who just can't beat her in the weight class. When it comes to the best of the best, those the, those mental mistakes, th- that lack of awareness is going to get her beat every time. And it has against the very best in her division. She's always lost because she's never been able to keep it together. She might have one good round and she completely falls apart. Against Hill, the good thing is she didn't completely fall apart. She had something left. She was exchanging with Hill. Hill was out working her, but she was still exchanging her. So that shows some growth. But she shouldn't have put herself in that position in the first place. It was unnecessary. She didn't have to force hunt for those takedowns that way. And I don't know why she continues to sabotage herself when her weakness has been histor- has been known historically. It's been a weakness from day one. And it hasn't improved any better. And she shows flashes of fighting with the IQ necessary to manage it. But she, she just can't show the consistency. It's like she, she can't fight a smart fight for all three rounds when a, an opponent is pressing her. When an opponent is making her work. So, good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Um, We're going to move into the other close split decision from Saturday, where we saw Dan Ige defeat Edson Barbosa, also by a split decision. So, this one, I actually didn't see the whole fight. I don't really remember the whole thing. But, Shawan, what did you unpack from this fight here? It was Barbosa's uh, first appearance at featherweight and probably the biggest win for Ige at this point in, in his career. What were some of your thoughts about this bout? Uh, um, I didn't think he looked as fast as he normally did, but that's what's going to happen. You've moved to a, a weight class. If you're one of the fastest guys at lightweight, you're not generally going to be the fastest guy at a weight clo- way slower. He seemed explosive. He still seemed dynamic. Um, he didn't. He seemed a little bit more durable, but I don't know if that's because he's facing a guy who's not a big hitter. But he didn't, he didn't seem as physical. He didn't seem as fresh as I would have expected him. It's, it's really hard to tell because Barboza doesn't really fight whole rounds. In almost every fight, he, when he's been forced to work, he's gotten tired. He has lapses and volume. He starts loading up for home run kicks and punches, and um, his defense tends to fall, fall apart. And the same thing happened at Featherweight. To me, he, he seems a lot... He seems much like the fighter he was at Lightweight. The main difference is at Lightweight, you had to be a certain caliber of guy to beat him. Once again, he only lost to like Kevin Lees and Khabibs and Tony Ferguson. Guys like guys like Ige didn't didn't beat him. They didn't come close to beat him. He usually starts guys like that. Or like he did to Dan Hooker, just beat him so badly that there was a mercy stoppage to the fight. He never was able to do that kind of damage. I mean, he had moments. He punched a guy. He touched him. But there was never a moment where I felt he was taking over the fight. And there was never a moment I felt he was going to blow the guy out. And at lightweight against the same caliber of opponent, he would have done that. That would have been a knockout or such a one-sided beating. Somebody would have had to stop it. And neither one of those things happened. So when I think of Edson, I often wonder, and I kind of know the answer to this question as I say it, if we've seen the best of him um, at this point in his career, the damage, the weight cuts. I remember when he first came into the UFC and people were like, yo, this dude's leg kicking the shit out of everybody. And that's exactly how he came in. But since then, the story has been quite different. 
he's had a lot. He's had a hell. He's had a hell of a of a um of a list of fighters too. Like he's fought some of the. He's fought some bangers. Like he he has not looked at any any easy way out in his career. But the question is, have we seen the best of him at this point in time? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is. I think, I think you drop. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. I think when you drop weight divisions, it's because you've gotten to a point where you can't progress any further. I know we said he was bored at lightweight. I don't understand how you're bored when you've never beaten the top five guys in the division at any point. Like you can't be bored. You haven't ever. You haven't ever been elite. Everybody kept telling me he's an elite fighter. He's an elite talent. He's never been an elite fighter at that weight class. Yet he says he's bored. I think he hit his limit. And he realized he didn't have what it took to beat these guys that weight class. But he's figuring, if I go to featherweight, my power should be better. Maybe I'll be able to handle their power better. And my athleticism should make a difference. When you move up in weight, what you're saying is your quickness and your skill and your IQ is enough to, to offset the weight advantages these guys have. When you move down in weight, what you're saying is your power and your physicality is enough to make up for whatever speed and quickness advantages these guys there have. And it didn't carry over. Now, maybe the next weight cut, he'll be a little bit better. He'll be able to handle it better. But I really feel that he's kind of hit a limit as far as he's not. I don't think he's going to improve dramatically. His chin isn't going to magically get any better. His cardio isn't going to magically get better. And while he can still knock guys out, I don't think he's going to find the frequency he did at lightweight because at this weight, there's guys who are capable of handling his speed. Even if they're not as fast, they're used to seeing really fast featherweight. So they're, they're... they're more accustomed to what he does in his speed. And, and the book's been written on him as far as how you fight him. He hasn't really progressed in the past three or four years. He's been the same fighter the last three or four years, maybe three to five years. So I think we've already seen the best of him. He can get some favorable matchups. He might even get some highlight knockouts. But once again, once you start facing the best guys in the division, he's going to start running to brick walls. I can't see him beating Max Holloway. I can't see him beating um, Alex Volkanovsky. I mean, those are just two of them. I'm not sure that I see him beating Brian the guy I saw doesn't beat Brian Ortega. He doesn't beat the Korean Korean zombie either. Maybe beats Yair Rodriguez, maybe. But at this point, Yair Rodriguez is more durable and more athletic than him. So who exactly is he beating at this division? Who's an elite guy? I mean, right now, he's not even beating the, the, the middle top 10, lower top 10 guys. If you look at his run, I mean, he's fought... He's fought... Every, I'm not going to say everybody, but he's fought just about... I mean, two fights against Paul Felder, Justin Gaethje, Dan Hooker, Kevin Lee, Khabib Nurmagomedov, Gilbert Melendez, Anthony Pettis, Tony Ferguson, Michael Johnson, Bobby Green, Evan Dunham, Donald Cerrone. He's fought Jamie Varner, Ross Pearson, Terry Adam. I mean, he's fought just about anyone. Looking at this list, who do you think is his most valuable win? In my opinion, I'm going to go with the get with the Gilbert Melendez win. Yeah, name-wise, is Gilbert Melendez. When he beat Melendez, that was like the ghost is Gilbert Melendez. That wasn't Gilbert Melendez. That was UFC Gilbert Melendez, and that guy was trash. But what about Anthony Pettis? That was before the Gilbert Melendez win, and that was four years ago. Was Once that again, that, was, that, 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 wasn't, like that, wasn't pri- that wasn't prime Anthony Pettis. That, that was like a faded, already been beaten by a lot of people, Anthony Pettis. I mean, that was – I mean, it's it's it, – it's a good win. Pettis has made some good wins since then, but the Pettis he beat 
just wasn't the same guy. I mean, he's he's got a he he's he's never really been a guy who's who's well rounded or a guy who's really shown any sort of diversity. He's always lost to those kind of guys. And Pettis losing beating him beating Pettis just tells me at that point Pettis wasn't elite because Barboza had never beaten an elite guy. He just hasn't. There's no elite guys he's beaten. He's beaten guys who used to be elite, but he's never beaten them when they were elite. He just has too many holes. You pressure him, he's no good. You put volume on him, he's no good. You ask him to put punching combinations together, he can't do it. You know, it just yeah. That Pettis. They, I think they. Pettis I think they. Win. I think they've done the most with him based on his skill set, and they've got him in some good matchups, and his athleticism be able to carry him. But as a technical fighter, he has a whole lot of holes that people overlook because he can hit spinning kicks and jumping kicks and powerful body kicks and leg kicks. He Technically, he's not a great fighter. He's not even really that great a striker, if we're being real honest. You're talking about Edson? Yeah, see, he's not that good a striker. I mean, he can kick, but he, he's, not, he's not great in clinches. He's not great at boxing. He's not great defensively. He doesn't throw crisp combinations. He can't attack with a body to the hand. I mean, he's... He's, he's he's a dynamic athlete. If he if he was less of an athlete, a lot of people would have knocked him out. His athleticism allows him to do a lot of things. So let me ask this: You said he's not one that attacks to the body often. Are you not including kicks to the body, or are you saying that that counts as him? That's being all good he does. Kicks? Like if you if you tell me you're a, a legitimate world class striker, I got to see more than kicks. I got to see you be able to throw a jab and slip one. When's the last time you sent Edson Barboza? Slip a jab against anybody worth a damn. I got to see defensive footwork. Kevin Lee backed him right into a fence. Khabib backed him right into a fence. Tony Ferguson backed him right. He can't. He doesn't pivot out. On, he doesn't pivot out. He is an excellent on angles. He doesn't throw head and body combinations. He doesn't even really faint that much. And defensively, his head's on the center line. You can hit him anytime you want. Nobody's ever had a hard time hitting Nelson Barboza. It's just when he hits them, people stop throwing because they start feeling those kicks, so they start getting scared. But anybody who's tried to hit him has hit him. As fast as he is, he shouldn't get touched. And he gets touched all the time. Uh, you're not wrong there. So you're not, you're not too wrong there. Let me ask you this. Is there anything else from Saturday's card that stand out to you before? The only thing I want to talk about from Wednesday's card is the main event. Uh, Saturday was, did, um, did Ruffle fight OSP on Saturday's card? No, that was Wednesday's card. That's where we're going next. So on um, Wednesday, only thing I think, yeah, I, I think that was it as far as like um, the major fights. Yeah, that was the ones that drove the most interest, had the most impact on their individual divisions. What did you think about the main event between Anthony Smith and Glover Teixeira? Um, I thought that Anthony Smith got a bit exposed. I mean, we all. I can't even say exposed. He he's he's a guy with heart, fairly good conditioning, who's durable, and he's been able to get farther than he should have gotten because he's been able to outlast guys, out tough guys, and basically break their will and, and finish them when they hit their wall. He's not a great technical striker, not a great wrestler, he's not a great grappler. He's just not. He, he, I mean, people can tell me about who he knocked out and who he submitted. He's not great in any phase. It's a, more of his his will, his durability, and his ability to push through bad spots. That's essentially what separates him, his heart and his character. Skill-wise, he's very flawed. And um, I thought he could beat Glover because Glover's so fragile. Like, like, you can punish Glover. You can finish Glover. The thing is, you have to be very 
efficient and precise in what you're doing because Glover always gets hurt. Guys get hung up on that, and then they try to finish, and Glover just walks him down. In the case of Smith, his team had him fighting. He, he broke the rule that I tell all the fighters I work with. Do, I tell all the bad basketball players I work with, do not set a pace that you cannot either build on or the very minimum. I still came with this all the time. You have to be able to build on it or you have to be able to maintain it. Because even if you're slowing, even if you're not tired, you're just slowing to be smart, in your opponent's mind, he's going to say he's getting tired. You're gonna, you just gave him confidence. To the judges, they're going to say, you're slowing down. This guy's picking up, so you must be losing. Because you were throwing 50 punches around the first two rounds. Now you do 35. Oh, you're slowing. The momentum's turning. Even if the momentum's not turning, that's how it looks. He came out there, set a super high pace, landed some shots on Glover. But the thing is, he, he's throwing him like he's a killer. He's not a killer puncher. He's not a knockout puncher. Against guys with real power, maybe you get away with that. Maybe you finish Glover. He doesn't have that power. So he's throwing this volume. He tired himself out. Glover hung on. And then Glover just proceeded to beat him with an inch of his life. He had nothing left. He didn't have enough legs to, to, to handle shots, to defend takedowns, to, to improve position, to attempt submission, to get him off him. He was basically a target from that point on because he blew his entire energy reserve in that first round, throwing all that volume. And though he hit Glover a lot, he missed a lot too. And he exhausted himself and he had nothing left. And once he had nothing left, he didn't have the skills defensively or counterwise to do anything except take a beating. And basically his one his one elite level talent, his heart, his durability, is the only reason that fight went as long as it did. Because he had nothing to offer in regards to skills after that point. Yeah, had, um, it was very interesting the way he started. He started out with so much pressure, and the minute he ran out of steam, it just went away. Yeah, he, he, he I hate to say it, and it sounds really simple. Everybody's like, well, that's just common sense. If it's common sense, then why do so many people make that mistake? He thought Glover's fragile, Glover's old, he can't fight at a pace, he can't take punishment. And he's 100% right. Glover can't take punishment. Glover can't fight at a pace. But the thing about it is, Glover knows how to survive unless you are a killer, killer striker. If you can really, really punish him, like you really hit hard, you can get Glover out of there. You're Anthony Johnson, even somebody like um, and, uh, Alexander Gustafsson, because he fights at a high volume, he can do that two, three, four, five rounds in a, in a row. Smith can't. He's never been a high-volume fighter. I've seen him get tired and slow pace. He got tired against John Jones, and that was a super slow pace fight. He just doesn't have that in him. And for some reason, they told him to go out there and just empty it all out there, and he didn't have anything else. I don't know if they thought he could go the, he could go more rounds like that, but they overestimated. They, they outthought themselves, and they overestimated his cardio. And once his cardio is gone, you, you got to see where his heels are really at. Because when you're tired, you're, when you're fresh, anybody can do the can do the hooks, took off the jab, can work the guard, can get, can explode into submissions, explode to get back to your feet or get takedowns. When you're dead tired, you know this is a grappler. When you're dead tired, that's when the base level of your skill comes out. If you don't have the skill to set up proper sweeps and get submissions or to get back to your feet, you ain't going to be able to do it. Fresh, you can do it because you can muscle. You can horsepower through it. What do you do when you're not fresh? What do you do when your legs are gone? All you got to rely on is your toughness and your skill. We know he got toughness. We know he could take a beating. Why couldn't he do anything else? Dead tired and did not have the base level skills to do anything to a guy of Glover's character caliber on the ground. And he just got he got walked down by the veteran. He overextended himself, got tired, then he got walked down and beaten up for the better part of two and a half rounds by Glover Sixera. I mean, it was like watching an assault on YouTube. 
Yeah, it was definitely pretty bad there. So did you want to say something about the co-main event where OSP lost to Ben Rothwell? Oh yeah. Well, before I before I say to get to that, once again, I don't I don't have any thing against um, Anthony Smith's corner. I think he changed corners. He went to a new corner. Uh, I forgot the guy Krause. I guess Krause is the guy running his camp now. He was with somebody else earlier when he fought John Jones. And I get what they're trying to do. You try to diversify. You try to build on your your fighters' edges and skills. The thing about it, you can't switch a whole fighter's skills up that fast. It takes two to three fights for you. You can really get them into what you're trying to do, where their conditioning, mental and technical and physical conditioning is on point to where they're going to do the things you want to do. Early on, you just add one or two things different, two or three, three or four things. You focus on those. You let them do most of what they usually do, and you work on one or two areas of weakness that you can improve to give them a kind of an edge against a tough fighter. They tried to switch his whole thing up. He's never been that kind of fighter. And in doing so, he he hadn't done that in a fight, real life situation, and he exposed himself. And his camp, they're supposed to protect him. I know he maybe he said, don't throw in the towel, don't protect me. But the fact of the matter is, it's your job to do two things. One, prepare your, three things, prepare your fighter to win, and what it takes to win. Two, prepare that if they lose, they can defend themselves so they're not permanently or inherently or severely damaged. And three, protect them from themselves. They didn't do either one of those things. They gave him a fight, a fight plan he couldn't execute. They put him in a position of losing. Then they didn't develop enough skills so that he could lose in a manner that didn't involve him taking a severe beating. And then they let him take an extended beating for those two and a half rounds. And if you're a world-class athlete, like a top-level athlete, that kind of beating might set you back a little bit. When you're an average athlete like Anthony Smith, that kind of beating takes you from world-class to middle of the pack, even at light heavyweight. You don't take those kind of beatings and just come right back. And for a guy like him, he, who the majority of his career, he's faced knockouts and taken a lot of punishment, taking that kind of abuse isn't going to do him any favors because he's not a world-class technician, nor is he a world-class athlete. He might not even be a world-class fighter after that fight. So I feel they could have done more to protect him and more to prepare him correctly. And their mistakes cost him that fight. It might have cost him the next two or three years of being a legitimate contender, a world-class fighter. He didn't look world-class that night. He didn't even look like he should be in discussion for a title fight. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Um, who, who do you think he should face next? I don't know, dude. You can't put Glover in with anybody because Glover just knocks off these young guys. I mean, he if Jones moves up, he might be in position for a title fight because he's on a winning streak. And um, Smith needs to take a long break off, and he needs to take a couple steps back. Uh, this is just a bad look for him. It was a bad look and a bad fight, and you don't want to put him in with a killer coming off this kind of beating because then you come and take another one or you get a quick knockout, and now your body just can't recover. I think he needs to take an extended period of time off really work on what they want him to be as a fighter and then come back and kind of test the waters and move move ahead, move ahead accordingly. I don't think he needs to be rushing back for anything. And what about his response lashing out at people who questioned the stoppage? Even Jason Herzog uh, apologized, but he kind of told him not to apologize too. What are your thoughts he, about that? Is that, that he's supposed that, to do that? That's really weird to me. He's supposed to do that. He's a fighter. He's supposed to be a lunatic who makes dumb decisions. I mean, let's face it. The way Justin Gaethje fights, a coach would not recommend that too often because he knows the risk of it. Justin Gaethje, if he had a son, he wouldn't want his son fighting like that. I'm sure Justin Gaethje's parents don't want him fighting like that. That's his job, to do that. He's supposed to say these things. 
There's supposed to be adults in the room who are supposed to bring in common sense of this and rein him in. You're supposed to stop the fight. He's supposed to be mad at you, and that's good. You stop the fight. If you're a fighter and I call the fight, and you're like, Shawan, you son of a bitch, you shouldn't have called it. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to want to keep going. It's my job to protect you before you either break mentally or b- before you break physically. I'm supposed to know you well enough to pull you from that fight before you take such a beating where people have to wonder about your health moving moving on, moving on forward. And just say, you know, I got a little skittish. I shouldn't have pulled the, I shouldn't have thrown the towel. I, I shouldn't have called the fight. I should have let him go out on his shield. You can say that shit after the fact. Before the fact, you have to be the responsible adult and say, enough, enough's enough. So what if he fires you? Who cares? That's what I do. That's why a lot of fires don't let me in their corner. I'm like, you start taking beans like that, I'm just pulling the fight. I'll fire you. Who cares? It's, MMA don't pay nothing. I got a real job. <laughs> fire me all you want. I got to look your wife, your teammates, your kids in the eye, knowing I sent you out there to get your brains beat in. And it's easy for him to talk now. Now he's talking a different tone. Did he sound that way when he's talking about his teeth might have fallen out? I mean, he that uh, the base, the base was, was, was I'm just asking. I'll ask, this, this is going to seem disrespectful. But was the bass in his voice when his teeth fell out? Was he talking that hard then? Uh, good point. I, I didn't see any. I didn't see any questions about the stoppage when they stopped it. I didn't see him getting. He could have jumped right up and been like, "I'm fine." He laid there. He's looking for teeth. He wasn't talking tough then. Three days later, when you've recovered and you've gotten away from it, it's easy to say, oh, that was a coward's way out. You don't know what you're talking about. If I don't know what I'm talking about, then as soon as they saw the fight, why didn't you get your ass back up and say you wanted the fight to continue? It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And, I, and looking at his response, I, I almost feel bad for him because like, that's the response that he has to take. As, as a fighter, as you said, but in reality, it's like, yo, people are just looking out for your well-being. Yes, you're a fighter, and you're getting in there to do something that's more dangerous than probably 90% of the population will do, but there has to be a line somewhere. You, you know what's really funny? What's really funny is when people don't care, we're called bloodthirsty, and all the fans care. They don't care about your well-being. I got a family at home. They don't care if I make it home. No, nah, we care. You don't care. Clearly. You know what I mean? We, we're, we're worried about you, and you're telling us to shut up and mind our own business. But then when you get hurt, and you ain't got no money, and you're struggling, well, the fans only care when you're winning. The fans only care when things are going well for you. Now, I saw a report of people who seemed very concerned when things were going bad for you. You told them to shut the hell up. Yeah, it's definitely pretty bad. I mean, if, if I ever hear him saying that, well, the fans don't really care. Really? What, what happened last time the fans care? What, what did you say to him? What did you say when somebody tried to look out for you again? Uh, he, said, okay. he said, don't, basically. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. When you're struggling, I don't want to hear about you need money. I don't want to hear about your sick relative. I don't, I don't want to hear about your marriage. I don't want to hear about your kid. You told me not to care. You said it's your job to be a fighter. Worry about that. Cool. That's what I'm worried about. You cost me money. I don't care about how you're doing afterwards. So you brought up something quite uh, interesting the last two times um, we've been talking, and you mentioned a couple of different corners and some of their performances for some of these big-name fighters. I wanted to bring up Eddie Bravo. Did you see his comments about coaching Tony Ferguson? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know you have something to think about that, something to say about that, but he basically went 
on record and said he shouldn't have been cornering Tony Ferguson. That's what especially, I said too. He's... Especially as it was more apparent that it was going to be a stand-up battle, that he shouldn't have been in there giving Tony Ferguson any, any instruction. Now, I pointed that out when he told Tony Ferguson to go for an Imanari role in like the fourth round, which made absolutely zero sense. But to hear him flat out say that he shouldn't have been in there cornering, I think that it takes a lot to say that, first and foremost. Um, but it also sh- it's also disturbing to think that a fighter in Tony Ferguson's position fighting for all he was fighting for didn't put himself in a position to win from the very start. Well, it's weird because they're talking to Joe Rogan and they're like, he didn't, like Tony, he's saying how Tony hasn't gotten takedown in years. And I'm like, one of the main strengths you have is your ability to create scrambles, to submit guys, to get on position and ground and pound them or to or chain submissions together where you wear them out. Then you can get on top and chop them up. Or when you will get to the feet, they're so tired, you can chop them up. And I'm like, you don't actively work on how to get to the fight, the ground, unless somebody takes you down. Like, as good as Tony, as many skills as Tony has, when you fight in the manner he fights, where he challenges guys at their strength, for you to not have a way to force the fight to where you have an advantage is beyond ridiculous. And I said this before the fight. I'm like, Tony doesn't have a way to force the fight. He's not a great takedown guy. He can get back up. He can transition if you get to that point. But he has no way to force the fight where he needs to be if the fight gets out of hand. How are you a guy who's who who willingly engages in firefights, engages his opponent at their strength, and you have no way to force the fight where you have an advantage? Your basic story is they're going to get tired of hitting me or get tired of these exchanges or break mentally, and then I'll get the positions I want. I'll ramp up my volume and I'll wear them down. That's the same thing I've been saying about Tony for years, and it's stupid. And and um, and Eddie Bravo said the same thing. He goes, "Well, we just figured he was getting beat up, but then in the second round he had that that uppercut. In the third round, we're like, oh, he's coming on.' So you bought into the whole storyline too. That Tony Ferguson can't be hurt. No matter how much you hit him, eventually you'll get tired. He'll turn it on and he'll wear you out. As a coach, you fell for the romantic storyline." That's what a fan says. Well, Tony never gets out. He comes back late all the time. What coach prepares to come back late every time? You don't do that in any sport. No coach wants to come back when a with a win with thirty with one second left on the clock. They'll take it. They don't want it. You want boring wins. You want dominant wins. And you're basically telling me this man who has superior skills on the ground has no way to force it on the ground. He doesn't work on it. He doesn't try it. If he ever goes for it, it's some um, crazy. In Imari role, whatever role, it's no setup, structure, takedowns to work guys over and expose their weaknesses or extend them or tire them out. He's hoping they'll either get tired and take him down or there'll be some kind of thing where they fall down to the ground and he'll outscramble them. What sense does that make at the world-class level? If that's the case, what the hell is Eddie Bravo doing there? I mean, he said, well, Tony's a striker. Tony's not that great a striker. He's not. If he was that great a striker, he wouldn't get hit nearly as much as he does. He didn't take punishment. He can dish it out. That's what separates him, his cardio and his chin. Not his skills. Not his skills at all. So all that did was say everything I said that everybody said I was biased against Tony and I'm hating on him. His own guy who worked in his camp just told you exactly what I said. He just said it in a polite manner. I said Eddie Bravo shouldn't have been there. Eddie Bravo said he shouldn't have been there. I said he didn't prepare to extend or tire Justin Gaethje out using takedown attempts 
or forcing scrambles to exhaust them. He just said, Tony doesn't take anybody down. We just wait for we get taken down, and then we go for scrambles. And I just tell him, look out here, look out there. I mean, everything I said, the people were saying, I'm an idiot, you're hating, you don't know. His corner man or guy in his corner just said the same thing I said, except I said it in a very rude fashion. And he said it in a very polite fashion. I said they didn't know what they're doing. They're grasping at straws. They had no backup plan. They were expecting Tony to come back and win the fight because Justin was going to get tired. What did, what did, what did Eddie Bravo said? We, we thought Justin was getting tired. We expected him to come back. We didn't have a plan for taking him down. I shouldn't have been in the corner. I shouldn't have been asked to talk to him. I had no ideas. I choked. They ran out of ideas. They choked. That's what I said last week. That's what I said the week. That's what I said was going to happen the week before. I said Trevor Trevor Whitman's just going to just got too much for these guys. And then he comes out and basically agrees to everything I said. And I'm not not taking that necessarily. I'm right, but it's what he said in the interview. And I have people coming for me talking about I don't know what I'm talking about. How do I not know what I'm talking about? Eddie Bravo just said what I said. I mean, he did basically say exactly what you said there, and I should be in the corner. What did I? What did I say a week before? He should not be in the corner. What are you going to Eddie Bravo for? He doesn't know anything. Then he said, "Oh, you don't know Eddie's world class." Blah blah blah. But Eddie's this. Eddie's that. Then Eddie comes on. Oh wow! Look at that insight. Look at that humbleness and that awareness. Really? Why is the humble and awareness when he said it? Because I was aware he shouldn't have been there in the first place. I mean, yeah, it was. It's very interesting watching him say it himself was like, damn, that's spot on. That's really what Swan was saying last week. And it, it all came to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean and I'm not, I don't know. I, I'm not the smartest person in the world. Trust me, I'm not. There's lots of good coaches. I'm not saying I know everything. But when, when I'm, I, I've dealt with a lot of camps, dude. When I'm telling you these guys come in and allow these fighters to come up, to come up with the most ridiculous game plans, I would always say, they have them fighting from these imaginary positions of strength. Tony Ferguson thinks he's a better striker than Justin Gaethje. That has never been true at any level. Tony Ferguson thinks he can compete with anybody on the feet. only reason I thought he could beat Conor McGregor is because he could take him down and choke him. He can't beat Conor on the feet. I've never believed that. I figured he'll tire him out with takedowns and he'll exhaust him. But technically, no. He didn't have the skills to do it. He has many skills. He don't have those skills. And I'm just glad Eddie Bravo said it. I'm, I, I respect him for saying it. At least he, he was man enough to say that he shouldn't have been there and he choked and he should have handled it better and they should have handled it better. But for a guy competing in a fight he had to win before he had his biggest money fight, to, and I understand they switched opponents, but guess what? Justin Gaethje switched opponents too. He wasn't even supposed to be fighting. So mm-hmm. you're going to say you only had two weeks to prepare for him? Justin Gaethje only had two weeks to prepare for you. Only difference is you were already in shape and Justin had to work his way into shape. So don't give me that. Uh, I, I didn't know I was fighting this person. Yeah, whatever. You didn't know two weeks ago. Justin didn't know two weeks either. He had the same amount of time to prepare for you. So another bit of news that came out this week that I found pretty interesting is the zone is looking to get out of the Bellator game. They want to stay in MMA, but they are looking to get out of the Bellator situation because supposedly they are looking to part ways when this current deal comes up. What does that mean? How big of a strike is that to Bellator for, for the zone to be willing to stay in MMA, but just not want to partner with them? Um, and what does, what does Viacom do with that promotion now? I don't think it's a big loss necessarily. I mean, the fact of the matter is 
Bellator, as we said before, they have very thin divisions. They got two or three guys in there who move the needles, two or three guys who are considered world-class. And after that, those fights are getting really hard to make, legitimate fights that people in- care about. You know, Bellator's best, best thing model was having their tournaments, having guys win them, and then having guys fight for the title. That's what separated them. That's what made them who they were. Once they got away from that, they don't, they don't have the bodies to compete with the UFC. They don't, you know, PFL didn't come in there trying to compete with the UFC. They knew they didn't. They went to a tournament schedule. When Bellator was at, at its peak, really, it was still the tournament schedule. That's their peak. That's their strength. They probably need to go back to it. They don't bring in necessarily enough ratings. They don't have enough named fighters. They just don't. You know, the Tito thing and Shale was interesting. The heavyweight division had some names. But they basically burned out their biggest selling fighters in, you know, series in less than a year. They don't have any really interesting matchups. They don't have any really big fan-based fighters coming in who they can expect ratings for or they can guarantee sellouts for. You know, they're still going to the same model with a bunch of local fighters with maybe three or four well-known fighters. That's that's not going to cut it in this marketplace. That's not going to cut it for the money that the zone's um, putting out. They're expecting bang-up ratings, bang-up attention, bang-up fights, and they're not getting them. All right. I think that Bellator is an interesting spot where they could offer some value. They don't have, like you said, I agree, they don't have the roster that the UFC has at all. Um, They do have some individuals that could draw some attention over time, but I don't think they have the long-term ability to draw uh, just like the way the, the, the UFC does. I agree with you. There, yeah, I they would... all, all their stars got knocked out. Heather Hardy got a lot of attention, and she got dominated like two or twice in a row. Um, who's the, who's the, the guy who was the boxer and wrestler? Uh, Pico Pico, yeah, Pico had, yeah. had a lot of stuff. He loses his first fight, goes on a win streak, then starts getting crushed again. Like, I think the because only names they... they have are like Douglas Lima. Um, they don't even have Michael Chandler anymore, he's a free agent. Um, I, I know they're going to protect what you call it, uh, Valerie Lareda, as much as they possibly can. But yeah, I mean, it, it takes time to build these fan bases, and they throw these guys in, and these guys get crushed, and it's hard to it's hard to get them back on track. You know, they mishandled a couple named fighters, and the fact of the matter is, the UFC upping their production as far as having so many fight cards, it it hinders Bellator because at some point the UFC didn't; they only had fight cards here when they were first starting to pick up steam Bellator could have their weekly tournaments every two weeks whatever they had and it, it filled a void for MMA now there's not a void in MMA so now you have to have names you have to have incredible fights Bellator doesn't have a lot of incredible fights and they don't have a lot of names Fedor is on the way out if he hasn't already tired already King Mo he wasn't like a superstar but he was very popular he's not fighting anymore uh, Heather Hardy's not really in it anymore Pico nobody knows what to think see and think of him anymore he's supposed to be the future and the breakthrough star he ended up not being i mean there's just they don't have much way to gain traction and and to overtake or compete with the uc they don't have the depth they don't have the money they don't have the history uc has 25 year head start where they were building a fan base and and attaching them to the the brand of ufc it's going to be very hard for bellator to catch up not to mention they have all those delayed cards you know where people know the results and then the card comes it's just 
it just has been a gross mishandling of the talent and the opportunities they've had. Any any momentum they had, they've they've wasted it. That's a good way to wrap that up there. Uh, the I want to hop into some listener questions here, and the first is in reference to Kevin Randleman, who was announced as going into the Pioneer Wing of the UFC Hall of Fame on Saturday. This kind of surprised me. Uh, I am a big Kevin Randleman fan. He, you know, I make it blatantly clear, you know, I root for anyone black, and Kevin Randleman was the first African American MMA competitor that I saw that stood out to me and that like kept my attention as much as he did. It was sad to see him pass the way he, he um the way he did from complications to a staph infection. But Kevin Randleman was that dude um early, early, early MMA. What are some of your thoughts on Randleman and what is your biggest moment from his career? Uh that went over Crow Cop. Even the loss when he slammed Fedor and everybody thought he killed him. I mean, he was the UFC champion. I mean, he was he was one of the few the first wrestlers to come in and, and start the wave of wrestlers getting into mixed martial arts. He was probably one of the most successful black fighters, one of the few at that time black wrestlers coming in. You know, he kind of set a trend and and you know, all the guy all the black wrestlers that came in after were kind of guys who were following his lead to a certain extent. He was the first one to have Dramatic success. Kevin Jackson came in, but he didn't. He didn't dominate. He didn't do as well as a lot of people thought to be. Um, and then, of course, Kevin Randall was, was one of the uh, was 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 with one, one of the original fight camps in Hammer House, and he was one of the most athletic fighters in the history of mixed martial arts. I mean, if he, I mean, Ke- prime Kevin Randleman is probably a better, probably the best athlete in the history of mixed martial arts. I don't know too many athletes who are better than prime Kevin Randleman. And he fought great fighters. He fought legendary fighters. He was involved in legendary fights. And uh, I think it's worthy. I don't necessarily know. I mean, he was a former UFC champion. But just based on the things he's accomplished in MMA, he deserves to be a Hall of Famer. I don't, I don't see how you could put, do anything. Anything less than being Hall of Famer is, is a slap in the face to him. If you have Mark Coleman in there, then the guy who was right next to Mark Coleman, the guy who came right after Mark Coleman, should be in there with him. So... Prime Kevin Randleman, uh, he might be the best athlete that has stepped in MMA. Um, the dude, he looked every bit the comic book character as any fighter ever did. Um, even down to the blonde hair, all like all the muscles and his like ability, the way he moved around the cage at the time. He really just stood out to me as someone who, um, you know, just someone who found success that looked like me. That's important to me. Diversity and inclusion is very important. Uh, and it touched me the way Mark Coleman started crying. I don't know if you saw that during the Hall of Fame uh, speech or whatever they, they were doing. But the way he broke down, he couldn't even watch the video talking about how much he misses his uh, friend. I mean, moments like that are what makes me remember that I love sports as much as I do because it's been a really hard time to kind of really enjoy sports as they get more and more right-leaning. But that was a powerful moment that I really um, enjoyed on Saturday. So the second question I want to ask you, the last one for today, is in reference to Edson Barboza because he has made a mention that he plans on appealing the Dan Ige loss and, you know, he said he was going to appeal the Paul Felder loss as well. 
Why do fighters appeal close decisions? Um, we've never seen one get overturned. It has to be something egregious for a fight to get overturned, and then usually it gets, just gets overturned to a no contest. Why do we keep seeing this um, with people claiming they want to appeal split decision losses? And can you remember a time when this actually worked? I, I think a lot of it is just they're, they're really frustrated in management figures they're going to do something to show that I've got my guys back. I'm willing to spend my own money to argue your case, even though we know it's most likely not going to go through. It's a way of endearing yourself to the athlete. You know, like if I'm your manager and we go through this, we know nine times out of 10, it's not going to go through, but I'm willing to spend my money and my time to argue your case, win or lose. I'm doing it for the principal. So that makes it seem like I really got your back. I really support you because I'm essentially throwing my money away to get somebody to, to re-examine your fight, which we know isn't going to lead to anything. Yeah, I, I wonder what would have to happen for a fight to actually get overturned, but just to see Edson talking about that again, just kind of, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, it, I mean, it kind of just turned me off. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of tasteless because it's like when you've won close fights, Maybe you didn't you didn't have anything to say about it, and I get maybe you feel like you didn't really lose, but the fact of the matter is you did, and it seems like anytime you lose or the fight doesn't go the way you want, you're gonna find some way to complain about it. And I get it. You 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 dedicate so much of your time, you put so much into this, you made sacrifices. The fact of the matter is, anytime you fight, you can win and you can lose. There's gonna be bad judgments. There's gonna be bad calls. There's gonna be bad stoppages. At some point, you have to accept it as part of the game and keep going. Now, I'm not a fighter, so I don't know what they're going through. I'm not going to say I know everything he's going through. I know everything he feels. But the fact of the matter, he's a professional and he's a veteran. And it's, at some point, you just have to kind of accept the way it's going. If you want the you want the rematch at one point, put a couple wins together. Get that rematch. Put yourself in position. You'll get the rematch. But if you can't do that, then you got to kind of accept things where they go. Very true, and I think a lot of fighters have a hard time accepting when they don't get the actual win. You know what's always funny to me about fighters? They say they do solo sports, and the reason they do solo sports is because I don't have anybody else to blame. It's my fault if I win, it's my fault if I lose. But then they lose, and it's like, oh, well, it's the judge's fault, it's my corner's fault. I thought you did this because you didn't want anybody to blame. It's all on you. It is. It is, and it's it's tough when you see them in close situations like that. And oftentimes, you know, it's because they you know are struggling with their finances and they want that win so they can get paid both portions of it. Um, so that's a issue within its own right. So I hey, get I get it. It's that money is tough out there. I get it, but you chose this life. I mean, what have we said? There's people who are managing McDonald's who have better financial standings in some of these fighters that's what you chose i'm not bashing you for it i'm not judging you for it but you there's a lot of pluses that come with it there's a lot of negatives you can't get the negatives the pluses without getting the negatives doesn't mean i'm okay with it doesn't mean i'm happy with it but it's something you continue to choose to do so at what point do we just say hey these are the decisions you make deal with it seriously man um so that is it for our show today uh, why don't you let everyone know where they can find you and what you're working on this week? 
Uh, you can find me at MMA Ratings. I actually had a piece written and I didn't save it and lost it. It was just terrible. So I got to do it all over again. Um, got to figure out when the Black Widow piece is going. And then I'm going to do just, I have did two articles breaking out things I think camp should work on. And I lost both of them. So I'm going to redo those and then release them on um, MMA Ratings. Good, good. And you can find me at Garcia underscore sports when I'm talking MMA, pro wrestling, and everything in between. I'm about to watch the Owen Hart Dark Side of the Ring. Um, I don't know if you, do you remember that story from 1999? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I just saw um, a clip of it where they have Owen Hart scream. You know, when he fell, he was screaming, look out, because he was trying to protect the people that he was going to fall on. Oh, like, wow. Man, he, yeah, like, like that's something else. So they're kind of revealing a lot more of that information. So I'm going to go and watch that documentary and do the podcast this week about that. Um, but yeah, you can always find me for more wrestling and MMA content at Garcia underscore sports. You can go over to MMARatings.net to read the content that Shawan and everyone else puts together. And you can also rate the fights there. Check us out on YouTube at MMA Ratings. Subscribe there. And also catch us on other podcasting platforms to Spotify, Apple, um, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Anchor as well, and check us out every week. We'll be back next week. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be back next week to talk about, but we don't have a fight card this week, and we have one next weekend. But we'll be back to preview that fight card next week. So with that in mind, uh, Shawan, let's go ahead and close out, and thank you again for another week. Yeah, no problem, man. Take it easy. Uh, y'all be safe out there. Have a good one, sir.